Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. All right, what do we need to review before we do this thing? Of the play. I, um... <laughs> yeah. We can, still, we can still do Aubrey Fails at Shakespeare because... I did not. I did not review. Uh, okay. It kind of sounds like everything that happens in the play is just like what happens in history. So yeah. So I think we'll be okay. Yeah. I say we just go for it. This is the January of shitty plays. I think we can just embrace it. Welcome to the Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show. We are back. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together we are Whamlet. And this week we are kicking off the January of shitty plays with Henry VIII and our dear, dear friend, Merlin Cusell. You're welcome, Merlin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to it, girl. It's uh Yay. That's great. Hooray. <laughs> Let um, the January of shitty plays commence. Woohoo. Oh, and it's gonna be shitty. I mean the episode's not gonna be shitty, but the play is, so anyway. Yeah. So uh Aubrey and I don't know this play very well, but Merlin has directed it a little bit, so she is here to help us out this week. Also, we just enjoy her company. Mm. So and it's always fun to hang out with Merlin. So also, if you think you're an expert on one of Shakespeare's plays or one of his contemporaries' plays and would like to talk with us about it on a future episode, email us at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com and pitch us your ideas. So thank you so much for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoy the show despite how shitty this play is (laughs) and come back for more. Uh, And my question is, Merlin, tell the people who you are. Who the hell are you? Who the hell am I? That's a question I ask myself every morning in the mirror. Who the hell do you think you are, Merlin Cusell? Uh, I don't have a good answer for it yet. I'm hanging out in South Dakota. I work for the Performing Arts Center of Rapid City and the Black Hills Community Theater out here. We just did Macbeth. It was amazing and cool. Don't know what's happening next. Uh, So just taking opportunities when they come, doing my thing. Yeah, and you're a director and you're a playwright and because you're not going to talk yourself up, so I'm going to oh help you God. a little bit. Merlin is one of the <laughs> most talented playwrights I have ever had the pleasure of knowing. This girl is a fucking yeah. wordsmith and it's amazing. And we've both worked on her plays before and been yeah. in her plays and we were, full disclosure, I'm sure this will surprise no one, but we were all in the MFA company together. We knew each <laughs> other. We met through, you know, Mary Baldwin, Shakespeare yeah. and Performance Program, just like basically almost all of our other guests um so just putting that out there yeah. merlin is uh also i just need the world to know that on her outline she wrote polo player raconteur and all-around good egg yes because so, she is all of those things just i had to put it there you yeah. gotta commit i'm I gonna know, do it for you myself a good egg seems so arrogant really yeah yeah <laughs> i want to well, comment on the goodness of my egginess well, well 
I'm doing it for you. I mean, Molly called <laughs> me a good egg once, and then I put it on my business cards. So perfect. Yeah, there, there you is. go. Um, <laughs> alrighty. So every week, what we do on this here podcast is we discuss a different play by our favorite guy, William Fernando Shakespeare, at what Ooh, we like Fernando. to call the 101 level. <laughs> Yeah, the 101 level is introductory stuff. Everything you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes and some cool stuff you're going to get nowhere else, like our opinions and this week, Merlin's opinions, which are amazing. Yeah. So let's get started yeah. with the device of the week. Yep, it's time for the rhetorical device of the week. Back in the swing. So uh, because we're word nerds, each week we draw a random device from our handy-dandy American Shakespeare Center rhetorical device flashcards. For actors and scholars, knowing these rhetorical devices helps us recognize patterns in Shakespeare's language so that we can gain a better understanding of what's being said and how it's being said. And basically, it helps us understand characters through their speech tactics. So Merlin, because you're the guest, you're the one who gets to tell me when to stop in my ever-shrinking pile as I flip through here. So you tell me. Go for it, you magnificent chipmunk-eyed goddess. <laughs> oh, that was okay. I'm going to put it right up close to the camera. You tell me when to stop. And here okay. we go. Stop. Okay. Ooh-hoo. All right. This week, you'll know this one. This week, the rhetorical device is isocolon. Oh. Ooh. I-S-O-colon. Isocolon. <laughs> or if you're Matt Davis, isocolon. Oh. Uh, it is. It's a form of repetition, rhetoric. It is a series of familiarly structured elements having the same length, a kind of parallelism. In other words, it's a repetition of sentence structure, right? Par of, it's parallel structure. An example? Yes. From Antony, Julius Caesar. When that the poor have cried, Caesar hath wept. Poor have cried, Caesar hath wept. Da, 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 da. I mean, you can find isocolon in a lot of a lot of different examples. I'm not quite sure why this one was chosen. I would have liked to see one with like three or some yeah. repetitions just to really solidify it. But it's an okay one, I guess. Yeah, well, I can't think of a better one off the top of my dome. Sure, but, but you know, since you are embedded with them now for the second edition, you can pull on your shadow networks and make it happen. That is true. That is true. The shadow network of rhetoricians. <laughs> yeah. Very shady. Not supposed to talk about it, Jess. It's like Sorry. Fight club. Sorry. Right. I know it's only Jesus like four Christ. of you in that office, but I just like, you got to network and, and figure it out. <laughs> we don't talk about <laughs> rhetoric club. That's the first rule. Oh, all right. Play the noise so I can say the thing. It's now time for your Burbage break with Master Master Cell. Uh, yeah, so it's been a while. I feel like I should preface with since I've done anything remotely scholarly. But a thing that I just find interesting about this play is how it seems like Henry's power is expressed verbally throughout the show. And uh, his two queens, Catherine and Anne, just get like these very visual dumb shows is really their only sign of like majesty and royal power and like ceremony and pomp. Otherwise, they're really just treated like everyday people. Um, so I just think that's interesting. And I'm sure that there is someone, perhaps one of you, that could take that and run with it and do something more exciting with it. But yeah, there's two dumb shows. They both are about the queens. One is about 
Queen Catherine being taken to heaven by dancing angels with garlands who curtsy to her. And uh, the other one is uh, Anne's coronation procession, which we don't just see. We also hear it described in ridiculous amounts of detail. But uh, for King Henry, he gets um, called king all the time. He's His majesty is referred to. His highness is referred to. Yes, I giggle when I say that because I think it sounds funny. <laughs> highness. And the more you say it, the funnier it is. Um, but like Catherine only gets highness once and never does, um, as opposed to Henry getting it 24 times. He gets majesty six times. They never get it. Um, Henry is referred to as king 105 times. Catherine is called queen only 16 times and in 11, but never to her face. And we actually never see or hear from Anne after her coronation. She just disappears. Something I find interesting. Don't know what it means. Probably nothing. Maybe wow. something. Hey, I'm into that. Wow. Hey, Merlin, for our listeners who may not know, can you explain what a dumb show is? Or would, yes. you, would you mind? So a dumb show, you is uh, nonverbal, thus the dumb part of it. Um, so there isn't dialogue, but it's uh, very visual and usually ceremonial. And it just tells the story visually through blocking. Um, and these two in particular are very indebted to like mask tradition with it being like super ceremonial um, and really like fancy times, but they don't have to be. So the other famous one obviously is Hamlet and the players doing a whole dumb show of their show before they do the mousetrap for Claudius. Right. So it's usually something that we read in stage directions. Like it's um, one of the few times a playwright would bother to write really descriptive stage directions, right? Yes. Um, yeah. So thank you. I just uh, wanted to put that in there. So it's not a value judgment. It's not a dumb <laughs> show in the adjective sense. It's a dumb show. Right. Sometimes they are dumb, though. Sometimes they're real dumb. Sometimes they are. And these are like, you know, like a lot of Shakespeare's uh, stage directions are editorial interference, but these are legit from the time, whether they're from him or not. I won't speculate. Yeah. Sure. So there's, um, I've got this one at the beginning of 2-4, which I think is right before the trial. And it's so long. I just want to read it. Trumpet, senate, and cornets enter two vergers with short silver wands. Next to them, two scribes in the habit of doctors. After them, the Archbishop of Canterbury alone. After him, the bishops of Lincoln, Eli, Rochester, and St. Asaph. Next to them, with some small distance, follows a gentleman bearing the purse with the great seal and a cardinal's hat. Then two priests bearing each a silver cross. Then a gentleman usher bareheaded, accompanied with a sergeant at arms bearing a silver mace. Then two gentlemen bearing two great silver pillars after them side by side the two cardinals two noblemen with the sword and mace the king takes place under the cloth of state the two cardinals sit under him as judges queen catherine takes place some distance from the king the bishops place themselves on each side of the court in manner of a consistory below them the scribes the lords sit next to the bishops the rest of the attendants stand in convenient order about the stage my goodness yeah woof and I suppose Ugh. that one's a little bit less of a dumb show and more of a just here is everybody who enters in the order that they enter and where they go. But it's still like highly ceremonial. Yeah. And yeah. Pompey. Yeah. <clears throat> Pompey. yeah. <laughs> Wrong play. <laughs> oh, dear. That was your Burbage break with Master Master Cell. Move us on, Aubrey. <laughs>
Yeah. All right. So before we begin any kind of summarizing, we always start with a five-word, very unhelpful title. Mine is Epic Final Lion King Moment. And that will make sense at the end of this summary. Well, it might not. Maybe not. Uh, <laughs> we might have to circle back to that and explain it. Um, so my title is The Shittiest of January Plays, because this is the worst one that we're doing, frankly. Bless you, Merlin. Bless you, Merlin, for taking this on. I don't think it's the shittiest. I just feel like I should say that. This is but... why we have you. <laughs> yeah, so my unhelpful title is What's That Butts? A mask. Because <laughs> what's that butts is my favorite line in the play. And because I don't think it's really a play, it's a mask. And if you treat it that way, it works better. It's a less shitty mask than it is a shitty play. Oh, I am here for that. What's that butts? That's actually a line in this play. How did I miss yes. that? And you'll never convince me that the entire reason Shakespeare put Dr. Butts in this show was just for that line and because of his name because he does nothing yeah. but he's a historical person and I am sure that Shakespeare was like Butts uh. <laughs> what's that Butts that's amazing haha <laughs> ha. I feel so valid for your show what's that Butts oh my god yeah like ask people on the street things about Shakespeare <laughs> oh my what's god we should do that the next time we go to a conference oh shit I like, think we what's just that Butts have like Put a microphone in someone's face. What we're doing at SAA. So there it is. It's yeah. very like Billy on the street, you know. Good. <laughs> it's a history play, therefore we must have a tucket. <laughs> Time for the dramatis personae. <laughs> and just to briefly contextualize the history for people who are trying to follow the timeline. I don't need to cover all the stuff about Henry VIII because he's probably the most known of all these people. But think we're picking up at the a generation after Richard III has died. So Henry VII, a.k.a. Richmond in Richard III's play, right? Henry VII is Henry VIII's dad. Then there we are. He was a very unexciting king. Uh, his son, Henry VIII, was a very exciting king, especially when he's played by Jonathan Rhys Meyer in the Showtime series, The Tudors. Um, and that's all you need to know, basically. You can just watch that show to catch up on the, the history. Yeah. So like, I'm just placing us there in the timeline. So now we can move on with the actual dramatis personae, but only the really important ones in this play. Go, go. Which obviously starts with Henry VIII, yes. king of England. Son yeah. of Richmond. There you go. There you go. Uh, he is married to Catherine of Aragon. She is his queen. There's also this guy named Cardinal Wolsey, played by Sam Neill, I think, in the Tudors. Anyway, Jesus <laughs> woman. Sorry, I'm sorry. Like everything I know is like from the. It's it's bad. He's the chief advisor to the king. That's who he is. Wait. There's the Duke of Buckingham, who is loyal to Henry, but an enemy of Wolsey, hot-headed. Uh, we also have Anne Boleyn, who is one of Catherine's ladies-in-waiting, and she's later Henry's mistress and second wife. Then we have Thomas Cranmer, a Protestant priest on the side of reforming the church, um, who supports Anne marrying Henry. And, of course, the aforementioned Dr. Butts, Henry's personal physician, who only has nine lines, but I'm never going to get over the fact that his name is Dr. Butts. I mean... 
I need you to know, Merlin, that as I was writing the summary, I was looking out for Dr. Butts and I was like, where the fuck is he? And then I had to like go into the DP and be like, where's Dr. Butts? Oh, he only has nine lines. Got it. Okay. And then I wrote him into the summary just for you. Thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs) He's very important. He is very important. So why is this play so goddamn popular? Well, it's not even a little bit at all. Um, but Merlin's going to tell us some things about why it's not a complete waste of our time. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Go for it, Merle. Definitely not a complete waste of time. Um, should it be popular? I don't know because it's like, was written for such a specialized audience. And if we think of the infamous, why this play now question, there's really no good answer since we don't have a Queen Elizabeth. So writing and performing a play to celebrate her doesn't make a lot of sense. That being said, Catherine has amazing language. Woolsey has amazing language. Um, and the dumb shows have the potential for like really cool staging of visuals, really spectacular. So I think somebody who was really innovative and was willing to go for the pageantry of it, not try to make it something it's not and maybe an audience that was willing to go along for the ride, it could work. I could see it. Okay. I'll buy it. I'm down with that. It's summary time. So now we're going to summarize Henry VIII for you in a segment that we like to call Henry VIII had six wives, but he only gets one summary. <laughs> Whatever, Merlin laughed. <laughs> yep, it's, and it also does pretty good. You laughed when I read this to you at your kitchen table. I, so. I do remember. I remember like sniffling and. Uh-huh. That's what I remember doing. Yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> Something tells me that we're gonna come in well under five minutes on this one. Well, I'm thinking. Um, we'll see. We'll see how we go. All right. So whenever you're ready. Take it away, Merlin Cusell. All right, act one. There's been a meeting between Henry VIII and the French king. The Duke of Buckingham is salty because the whole thing was orchestrated by his arch nemesis, Cardinal Woolsey. He swears to tell the king that Woolsey is treasonous, but then he gets arrested for treason himself. What? Henry is grateful to Woolsey for ferreting out Buckingham's treason. Catherine of Aragon warns Henry that the poor people are in rebellion because Woolsey is taxing them too heavily. Henry ignores her. At a banquet, Henry meets Anne Boleyn and swoons. This will definitely not be a problem later in the player in history. Definitely not. Act two. Buckingham is condemned to death. Oh no, that's another Buckingham beheaded. Why do these Buckinghams keep getting beheaded? Some gentlemen report a rumor that Henry wants to divorce Catherine. They blame Woolsey. Woolsey starts working on the divorce. Anne Boleyn pities Catherine and then gets worried when she learns Henry has made her the Marchioness of Pembroke. Henry puts Catherine on trial to determine the legitimacy of their marriage and whether or not she was a virgin on their wedding night. (gasps) She makes an incredible speech, and Henry's mad that everything isn't going his way. Act three, Woolsey wants Catherine to agree to, to divorce, and she's all like, hell I will. Henry finds out just how rich Woolsey is and gets mad. Then he finds out that his rival, Thomas Cramner, has been named Archbishop of Canterbury, and that Henry has married Anne. Woolsey finds that out. He's the he in discussion. Uh He, Woolsey, leaves court. 
In disgrace. In Act 4, Anne has a coronation. Catherine learns that Wolsey has died. She has a dream that she is welcomed into heaven by angels. And she sends a letter to Henry asking him to care for her do- for their daughter, Mary, after she dies. And then she dies. In Act 5, Anne gives birth to a daughter. Cranmer is going to be tried for heresy. Henry and his personal physician, Dr. Butts, intervene and save Cranmer from the tower. Cranmer presides over the christening of Princess Elizabeth and prophecies that she'll rule over a golden age, holds her up on top of a rock, and everybody sings the circle of life. <laughs> that's pretty much the end. <laughs> yep, that's what happens. All right. Well, that was two minutes and 10 seconds. So yeah, shaboom. Okay. Well, now that that very short, I mean, that's like pat on the back for us. That's the shortest summary we have ever done. Yeah, I think Ooh, so. It's almost like we don't know the play that well. <laughs> that, and I mean, honestly, you know, uh, there's not a lot to, it's pretty straightforward. It there's really, not, like, there's no subplot. subplot. Yeah. Well, there's, it moves pretty quick. Yeah, it does. Um, so, as I um, recall from the last yeah. time I read it. And we do have the benefit of it being a really well-known story now, as yeah. told by the documentary on Showtime's <laughs> The Tudors. I hope you're getting a sponsorship deal for this. <laughs> what I'm shooting for. Except it's no longer running as a show, so like oh we're kind of screwed. <laughs> I'm trying, though. I'm trying real hard. Uh, okay, sorry. It's tips and tidbits time. So, like, talk to us about some cool stuff that you love about this play, Merle. Yeah, so uh, one of the most famous things about this play is obviously it is the cannon shot that brought down the globe um, in performance June 29th, 1613. They set off cannons during the show. The burns the globe down to the ground. Um, But here's the thing I don't understand. We know this because of contemporary accounts which refer to this play by the name All is True. But I looked, granted, I looked in the wee hours of last night and for another hour and a half this morning. But nowhere could I find anything that would tell me why we know that Henry VIII is all is true. They all just said it like, this is what it is. Do you guys know? So I went looking through the Arden edition when I saw this note, because I was like, oh, that's fucking weird. Um, That is weird. I thought it was all on the same title page. Am, Am I wrong? No, because it's only in Folio. Enter the eighth comma, all is true. Or, oh, okay. No, it's only in Folio. There's not a quarter of this. Um, I say that as I'm immediately double checking. But So I went looking through the Arden, and Gordon McMullen, who is the editor of the Arden, doesn't really address it. He says, it might well, quote, it might well have been titled All is True. And also he says it was probably, the title was probably changed for the Folio quote, for purposes of continuity with the titles of the other history plays. That's pretty much all he says. So. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and then the, huh. also the title page of the Arden says Henry VIII and then in parentheses, all is true, which is weird. So I, two hours ago, <laughs> tweeted, I was like, hey, anybody know why we know this? No one has tweeted back at me yet, but we'll keep you all posted. And if anyone tweets back at me, knowing things, there it yeah. is. Like, do we actually know this? Or are we all just making an assumption based on an assumption someone else made like a million years ago? I mean, it must be it must be in some record somewhere. Because how how there's nothing in the title all is true that would be like, oh, yeah, that's the play about King Henry the Eighth, Like... 
Right. There's nothing there. There. Yeah. I don't know. I just don't know. The the Arden edition is mostly concerned with like performance history and uh, textual stuff. It it really goes into the collaboration, which is the first time in this episode that we're mentioning that this is a collaborative play. Shakespeare wrote it with that nice John Fletcher. That's pretty much all we got. It's super weird that like we don't know why. Yeah. I sort of, this is just gut feeling. I have nothing to back this up, but I sort of wonder if All Is True has anything to do with like, this play could be a little dangerous politically when it came out because Anne is seen in a good light. It's not like they malign her for being like a seductress or anything, but Catherine is also presented in a really positive light. And somehow, even though he treats them both poorly, Henry comes off as not being this evil machinator if that's a word it is now oh hey actually i think i just figured it out oh yeah yeah i looked in a different section okay so this guy whose name is henry blewett that's his name oh he's a merchant um and oh, good. He... He's not still alive. <laughs> no, oh, no, no, no. So you meant the editor. Oh, God. Okay. No, no, no. This is this is a, a 1613 <laughs> Londoner, Henry Blewett. Okay. That's so we can um, make fun of him. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. So he wrote uh, a letter or a diary or something. He wrote something. And he says, on Tuesday last, there was acted at the Globe a new play called All is True, which had been acted not passing two or three times before. There came many people to see it insomuch that the house was very full. And as the play was almost ended, the house was fired with shooting off a chamber, which was stopped with toe, tau, T-O-W-E. I don't know how to say that word, uh, which was blown up into the thatch of the house and so burned down to the ground. But the people escaped all without hurt, except one man who was scalded with the fire by adventuring in to save a child, which otherwise would have been burnt. So how do we know that's Henry VIII? Yeah, well, so we don't. But then there's this other letter from Thomas Lorkins, who says, No longer since than yesterday, while Burbage, his company, were acting at the Globe, the play of Henry VIII, and their shooting of certain chambers in a way of triumph, the fire catched and fastened upon the thatch of the house, and there burned so furiously as it consumed the whole house, and all in less than two hours, the people having enough to do to save themselves. Okay. So, I think... Yeah, I mean, the globe couldn't have burned ooh, down ooh, ooh, twice ooh. in as many days. Yes. So Also, we get uh, a letter from the diplomat, Sir Henry Wotton, who uses both names. Here we go. Now to let matters of state sleep, I will entertain you at the present with what hath happened this week at the bank side. The King's players had a new play called All is True, representing some principal pieces of the reign of Henry VIII, which was set forth with many extraordinary circumstances of pomp and majesty, etc. Here's some stuff that happens in the play. Also, there was a cannon and it fucking burned down. Yes. So it must Great. be... Mystery solved. Yeah, there it is. All right, I'm going to delete my tweet. Okay. Now I'm going to look like an idiot. <laughs> Don't think asking questions makes you look like an idiot, Jess. It makes well, you look curious sure. and intellectually rigorous. Yeah. There you go. Well. <laughs> but yeah, I think there might be something to the the all is true thing, like you said. I mean, it it really this play really does read like like state propaganda, you know? So like right. everybody comes off looking good. 
But it's like tricky state propaganda because how yeah. do you make Henry VIII look good and make Catherine look good? It's very tricky. Right. Yeah. Tricky. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> At any rate, there it is. Also, cannons in a thatched roofed building. Right. I don't know. Doesn't seem like the best idea to me to start with. Dummies. Nope. nope. I mean, I think they figured that out when the building burned down. They learned that lesson. Yeah. I mean, I they, had, they learned it, it the hard way. <laughs> did it require practical experience to know that? Probably not. Probably not. Evidently <laughs> so. Anyway, uh, other stuff, I guess, uh, just general history stuff that's in the play. At the beginning, there's this huge description of the meeting of Francis I of France and Henry VIII at the Fields of the Cloth of Gold. It's arranged by Woolsey. It was real. It was super expensive. And all of the like contemporary accounts of it just go on and on and on, explaining like this huge tent palace that they made with a roof that was painted to look like a lead roof and huge glass windows and things and stuff. Um, but it had no long-lasting political implications. Its style implications will live on forever. Um, it's the OG of glamping, sounds like. Oh my God, it so is. I think it totally is. And Woolsey did, in fact, convene in an ecclesiastical court to try and get an annulment of Henry and Catherine's marriage. Uh, it sounds like a lot of Catherine's speech from that scene in the play is pretty much exactly what she said in the court. Um, wow. And there was, but the Pope was actually at the time currently being held by Catherine's nephew. So he was never probably going to approve that. Uh, it was just so, sort of her show. Yeah, because her nephew was uh, the Holy Roman Emperor. Right. Right. Like stormed the Vatican and was like, hey, I'm going to kidnap the Pope. Everybody cool? All right, cool. Yeah. Like you do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anne in the play is really quiet and naive and she has very little to say, but all the contemporary reports of her have her being super vivacious and she wielded considerable power in the court even before they were married. Um, diplomats would like go to her first and get approval from her before they talk to the king. And most interesting for me is where's Thomas More? Yeah. Why is he not in this play? Because he's a big player yeah. uh, historically, <laughs> but he's absent in this. Does this have to do with the extant Thomas More play that we know Shakespeare wrote parts of? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. That's yeah. bonkers. Yeah, because Thomas More was like Henry VIII's sort of spiritual guide and like yeah mentor kind of as a young man like they debated and talked about theology and like he was a sort of like spiritual rock yeah and the so, play yeah. the the play sir thomas more which is coming up at the end of the january of shitty plays stay tuned for that y'all um <laughs> like barely touches on this whole situation like it's sort of alluded to but it's not really a major plot point it like yeah you know it comes up in the last part of the play and then you know thomas moore is hauled off to the tower for not signing the documents that henry wants him to sign um but it's like i bet maria hart knows all about it oh she does yeah. she's she's yeah. gonna tell us all about it in three weeks um, Fantastic. yeah because yeah. we're obviously if we're gonna do thomas moore we can't not have maria on 
we yeah she was the only person we thought of we weren't like you know which of our 17 sir thomas more experts are we gonna get because <laughs> we we just have an embarrassment of thomas more experts in our lives right. no as you clearly did for henry the eighth since i've directed <laughs> one summer camp staged reading of it and that qualifies me to be an expert well <laughs> I yeah, mean, I mean, full yeah. Disclosure to our listeners: I read this play exactly once, approximately uh, 13, 14 years ago. So, yeah, you're I more of an saw it. I saw it roughly six years ago. I saw it in February of 2013 when they were doing it in the Ren season here. That was what I saw. It amazingly did not scare me away. That was what I saw when I came to visit the program <laughs> as like a prospective student. That was the one show that I got a ticket to. Right? Did they sing I, Lion King songs? <laughs> I don't remember honestly i don't they should have if they didn't but i don't know if disney probably would have tracked them down and like made them pay for it so like literally made them pay for it no in the mm. flesh yeah <laughs> yep they were doing merchant of venice that spring too yeah. <laughs> oh it's all cyclical uh, yep no. yep well you are the only one who has any kind of production experience i saw it i've seen it a couple of times i saw it at osf a couple of years before the one I saw in 2013. But other than that, like, I haven't tried to produce it. So, like, give us your thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, uh, to kind of beat this dead horse a little more, uh, it's a mask. I'm just not going to let it go. Um, that was sort of, like, what I found most successful about when I staged it. And when I did do it, it was with a summer camp. And so there was this added... Uh, obligation of being sure that everybody got fair parts and representation on stage. So that kind of dictated a lot of the choices. But we ended up doing almost the whole show in a way as a dumb show because we double cast Catherine and Woolsey and Henry VIII and had one actor doing the voice from up in the balcony and one actor doing oh, the body on cool. stage. Ooh. Yeah, I don't know that it was as successful in practice as it was in my mind. But it worked okay. But the most successful parts really were like the, there's the dance where Henry meets Anne and he and his nobles all come in masked. There's the like court entrance that Jess read. There's the coronation um, procession, which we actually, because of cutting, we staged that simultaneously with um, Catherine's vision of angels taking her to heaven. So it was sort of like, as Catherine sort of ascends mm -hmm. to uh, the next life, uh, Anne is taking the crown mm. and the throne. Um, so I feel like I wouldn't mind trying it again, because I think if in production you really dialed down on that, the spectacle of it, and just went whole hog for that, I think it actually could be successful. Because what like the plot-wise seems to be doing is showing that there are all these seemingly human disasters and the fall of like Catherine and Woolsey and Buckingham, but uh, it all leads up to this ultimately beneficial thing with uh, Elizabeth coming to the throne. And I don't know how that will ever speak to a modern audience because we just don't have a similar person and it would mean really playing fast and loose with the text anyway to change who Elizabeth is. But if you could get the audience to buy into that idea, I think it could be a really cool, interesting performance. But I think you, I don't think you could do it like you would do a regular straight Shakespeare play. I just don't think 
I don't think it's as uh, open to interpretation. I don't think it's as open to being staged in a million different ways. I think you really have to stay within the form that it was intended for it. And in that way, it just may not be as um, timeless a text as some of his works are, in my opinion. Um, so I just want to jump in and talk about masks a little bit, because I don't know how much we've talked yeah. about them on the pod. So masks. Yeah, we haven't. M-A-S-Q-U-E, not M-A-S-K. And a mask is like a mix between a play and a dance-ish is like kind of the best way I can describe it. They're very performative, but it's like, it's not a straight play. It's not a, a, a piece of dance. It's not an opera. They're weird. They're like this weird sort of amalgamation of every kind of performing art. and So like weird. a musical. Yeah, yeah. No. They're more immersive though, too, yeah. because it's usual that like you would perform them at least masks of this era, that you would perform them in court, that people of the court would take part in them. Right. The sets and stuff would take up like the whole space. And so it would even be like, if you think of like modern site specific theater where the audience kind of moves with the show, it would sort of have that element maybe to it as well. Like if you've seen the film restoration, they do a really good mask in there where it's like the mm. king and all his mistress like enters on this big glittery barge, like into a fake river that they built mm -hmm. in the court mm -hmm. and everybody's like dressed in costumes to theme. And they're always supposed to be sort of aggrandizing the people that they're performed for. Yeah, Which is why this like talks about James as well as Elizabeth. Yeah, it's a court entertainment, right? You you wouldn't have a mask like out in Stratford. That's not a thing. Or at the playhouse. Yeah, no, they were they were court performances. Game are time. You, are you down for some line roulette, girl? I think so i have no idea what it is okay. and i feel like i'm gonna lose terribly no, but no. Yeah. so you remember oh, no. you remember that time no. when ralph was like hey give me a number and it will find the page oh. in the norton and then it was like that line about the deer and mary yes. wives and he was like here's how this line is representative of the whole play yes it's that that's what you're doing okay I'm gonna with roll Henry the Eighth. Yeah, with yes, Henry VIII. Okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna roll my dice here. Uh, also, yeah, which what... uh, which edition of the text are you working with today, Merle? Um, I actually have two here. I have the an old Bevington, and I also have the Norton. Okay. Okay. Cool. Well, I've got the Arden. Um, so okay, great. Merlin, you are looking for Act Four. All right. Scene one. Uh, line 65, if we have a line 65. We do, or I do. Great, 4165. Oh, yeah, oh, have fun. Oh, dear. Mine is a distance from her while her grace sat down. Yep. Is that yours? Is it a stage is direction? No. 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 It's the third gentleman. But it's about. while they're talking about uh, Anne's big thing. Coordination. Um, Anne's yeah. big thing. The title of your sex tape. <laughs> Which evidently someone named Anne will also be in. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this is going to be a total stretch. But uh, I'm going to go with sort of my earlier verbiage break theme of the women 
not really getting a lot of their royal dues given to them and say that throughout this play, the women are treated as women while their queenhood, her grace, if you will, is considered separate from them, a distance from them, their grace, it's down, <laughs> if you will. Um, because I think, especially from a modern perspective, that's an interesting thing about this play is the way uh, Henry's majesty belongs to him. It is invested in him since birth and can't be taken from him, but it can be given and taken from Catherine and Anne. So it is a separate entity from them. Cool. 40 seconds. Right crushing it. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm brevity is the soul of wit. No, girl, you're fine. I sometimes don't take the whole time when we do it. So. Um, uh. Sorry. Bunch of perverts over here. Sorry. It's true. That's cool. Can't That's stop. Cool. Me. That's mm -hmm. cool. All righty. Moving on. Uh, do we have a noise for corrections? Should <laughs> be like a <laughs> womp, womp. Yeah, That's the correction. That's, that's the noise. <laughs> there it is. We say a lot of things on this podcast, and sometimes we misspeak or misinterpret information or just plain get things wrong. So it only seems right to issue corrections as necessary. Okay, so I knew this was going to happen. Uh, I got behind on listening last semester, uh, and I knew that when I got caught up, I was going to have a shit ton of super late corrections to issue. But in fact, I think it's just this one. So here it is. Um, we've been talking about Margaret in our dick bracket a little bit. Uh, and as evidence of her dickishness, we've been offering up the fact that she kills Rutland. But at the end of November, I spent some time with the text for a paper I was writing, and it's definitely Clifford who kills Rutland. So there's that. Yeah, it's just Margaret who smears the blood on yeah. York, of Rutland on York's face. Yeah. Um, I didn't put this in the script, but I, too, have a correction to issue oh. now that it, you have jogged my memory. Great. Um, so I said when we did our Richard II episode... I said that Richard II was the only play written completely in verse. Yep, you said that. I I was wrong. Uh, there is one other. There is just one other, according to, I think it's Stephen Greenblatt's like help, very helpful chart. Sure. Uh, it's King John. King John is the only other one that is uh, written yeah. entirely in verse. It's so weird so. that it's two early history plays. Yeah, yeah. That is kind mm -hmm. of an interesting trend. But yeah, so there it is. Mea culpa. Like, I knew that was going to happen. I was like, I can't say something this definite and be right about it. <laughs> like, I just can't. And in fact, <laughs> you were not. I was only off by one. It wasn't like an exorbitant number that turned out to be all in verse, but still. Sure. So there we go. All right. There it yeah. is. Yeah. Those are our corrections. So, all right. Um, it's Shake's Bubble Gossip Time. Um, I wrote shout out to Jeffrey Fox. Why did I write that? Because he sent us that super lengthy email about how awesome we are. Oh, right. Yeah. Hey, Jeffrey Fox. How's it going, man? He yeah. wrote us a very kind email um, about how we essentially are kindred Shakespeare spirits. Yeah. And uh, he comes through uh, Stanton every once in a while. So, like, next time, let us know. I'll say hey to you at the Playhouse or something. Yeah. Like. And, yeah. uh, you know, listeners, if you, too, send us a, a lengthy email about how great we are, we'll shout you out. It's what we do. We like hearing yeah. from you. Yes. Um, but right. only the nice ones. Yeah, no, don't send us a super long email about how terrible we are, because that will make us feel bad. And... and I can't stop you if you do no. that, but, like, don't. 
that. Please don't. Why? Why you gotta do that? Why you gotta? Why you gotta play me like that, listeners? Um, all right. So we actually have some some kind of big hurly burly news, which goes in the gossip section. Um, so those of you who are sort of in the Shakespeare academic world will know what this means. Um, but for those of you who are not, the Shakespeare Association of America is probably the biggest Shakespeare conference. Not probably. It is definitely the biggest Shakespeare conference in this country. Uh, it is definitely the biggest Shakespeare conference in North America. It is in the top three of the biggest Shakespeare conferences worldwide. Happens every year. Um, this year it's in Washington, D.C. in April, and the Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show is gonna be there. We are part of the SAA Digital Exhibits. Um, we're not yet entirely sure what exactly that means for us, since we're an audio medium. Uh, but we're going to be there with some kind of display, um, in that exhibit hall on, I think Friday is when we're scheduled. So if you're going to be at SAA, come say hi, we'll have something to give you. Yeah. At the very least a handshake, you know? Yes. But probably also something tangible. Uh, yes, that too. (laughs) It's going to be great. And we need to get working on that is what we need to do. We do. Um, I'm super excited about it, though. It's going to be fun. Yeah, it's going to be really great. Uh, This is Aubrey's first SAA. It is my, I don't know what number I'm on now. I've been an SAA virgin. It's such a fun conference. I'm super excited about it. So if you're going to be there, look us up. Uh, And that's what we've got to say about SAA. Um, Also, Alabama Shakespeare Festival is... Uh, they have a new play project, which is pretty cool. So what they're doing is they are looking to, they're commissioning new plays and they're looking to update the Southern canon. And what that means essentially um, is that they're, so they're looking for plays that will focus on quote, transformative moments in the South that caused important and lasting changes to its people, culture, and land. Uh, And this is the first major project of their new artistic director, whose name is Rick Dildine. I think I'm saying that right. Um, And it's sort of, it's revitalizing the Southern Writers Project, uh, which was founded in 1991, and it's now the Southern Writers Festival. Anyway, it's, they're going to commission 22 plays over the next five years, with more than half of the commissions dedicated to go to female playwrights and playwrights of color which i think is the tits so if you're a playwright uh look them up alabama shakespeare festival they're not just up the road from me but they are up the road from me in montgomery alabama that's awesome yeah that's really awesome uh also Um, sorry one uh, more thing the red bull theater company theater maybe it's just theater Mm -hmm. uh in england um also just today announced uh, a new play project i saw it on instagram and i couldn't click through because i was on my phone so i don't really know what it's about but they're also looking for new plays that are going to be in conversation with something red bull theater in england look them up super informative (laughs) that's what i got i saw it on instagram and i didn't i don't know what it's about (laughs) great that's great that's our flaccid dick noise <laughs> or Hashtag something like it flaccid dick noise 
We're going to talk about it's dick bracket time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So last week, obviously, we didn't have a matchup because we were on break and we didn't do one at the end of before the break because we didn't want to leave you hanging for a month. So we don't have a result to announce. Nope. <laughs> now you're all caught up. <laughs> Hooray. Yeah, you didn't miss anything. Um, this week, though, we are picking it back up uh, with our face-off. Our next face-off is The Cardinal from The Cardinal yep. versus Diamville from um, that one the play. The Atheist's Tragedy. The a- okay, I knew it was somebody's tragedy. Yep. The Atheist's Tragedy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the Cardinal, if I remember rightly, was the guy who, like, tried to rape the uh-huh. lady yeah he tries to rape the duchess uh and yes. then is interrupted from raping the duchess and then he poisons the duchess and then he poisons himself um right. he also tries to force the duchess to marry his nephew but then his nephew dies it's like a whole thing right. uh and d'amville of course murders his brother fakes his nephew's death tries to steal his nephew's inheritance uh tries to rape his daughter-in-law hmm whole lot of shitty shit going on great wow so we have this time okay so this is this is i think the first time in a while that we've had two rapey guys up against each other Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. uh because usually we uh, i mean like lately in our matchups it's been like the guy who attempts rape is the one who could like moves on to the next bracket but this time both of them have that in their repertoire shall if shall we say Gross. so so i i don't know who's worse of these guys honestly i'm kind of leaning towards the cardinal but like i don't know i'd have to i'd have to examine it a little more i'd have to plus i don't want to sway the people but yeah. merlin do you have any do you have any like gut instincts on this one on these two i know nothing about either of these people except okay. for what you just told me so <laughs> they sound pretty evenly matched i guess they do they are yeah yeah, they are. These um these matchups are going to get more and more difficult to decide, I think, as we progress. So there you have it, folks. The Rapey Cardinal or Rapey Diamville. One or the other. Um, yeah, look for it on Twitter. Well- It'll be out. Great. Oh, we forgot. Merlin, Um, I know you said it, you sort of mentioned it at the top of the episode, but um, we usually ask our guests, what are you working on and thinking about lately? What's what's up next for you? Yeah. What are you doing? Uh, so I just finished directing Doll's House Part 2, and I'm directing a stage reading of In the Next Room, The Vibrator Play by Sarah Rule. Yes. Coming up in April. So that's what's next. I don't know when I'll get to do Shakespeare again, because I'm in sort of a Shakespeare-limited community, but I'm trying to change that. And we had really good results with our Macbeth in the fall. So we'll see what happens next. Okay, cool. I am not familiar with Doll's House Part Two. Like, Renee where do you go? I, I know I saw that San Diego uh, uh, or the Old Globe just yeah. did it, or was it San Diego yeah. Rep? Yeah, San Diego Rep. San Diego Renee. Rep just did it. Um, yeah. So, like, I mean, what does it do? Does it follow what's her face after she's left her husband? Yeah, it's 15 years after the end of the first one, and Nora comes back, oh. and uh, it's an entirely different sort of style it's not realism sure and it's it's a very strange play when you read it it's a very strange play when you rehearse it you have to have an audience in the room reacting to it to really understand that it's a comedy Hmm. okay all right but yeah yeah it's the i think it's supposed to be the most produced play 
in the nation this last year in 2018. Wow. It's the hot new thing. Oh. And for some reason, Rapid City, South Dakota, did it <laughs> in a little theater over a brewery. And I was lucky enough to get to direct it. So That's awesome. Yeah. Wow, you're part of that wave. That's so cool. <laughs> That's great. Uh, all right. Well, if nobody has any other parting thoughts, mm. thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We hope you leave this podcast more informed than when you started. And you know what? If you're in the South Dakota area, like, keep an eye on Merlin Sell because um, she's there making art. Sorry, we just... I, I just love you and I miss you. Oh my so. God, I miss you so much. <laughs> I have to find a time to get back east. Come to Blackfriars. People. Yeah. It's a Maybe. Here. But then like Blackfriars, we're all doing like Blackfriars stuff. It's, true. it's exhausting. Really get a chance to see There's each other. Yeah. Don't so. come in the summer because then I will never see you because I'm doing camp. But like, sure. Come a different time. <laughs> all right, no doubt. Make it all about me, Merlin. <laughs> all about you, Ari. But well, also, I assume I'm going to crash on your couch, so it really is yeah. all about you. At a time yeah. that I will be there also, and we can all hang Yay. out. Yay! Cool. Yes, just invade my house. It'll be great. Girls trip. <laughs> Thank you so much to Merlin for joining us. We hope that you love her just as much as we do. Um, and if you don't, you're wrong. So there it is. Uh, you can find more of her on the internet if you. <laughs> That sounded so. Merlin, do you have a do you have a Twitter handle? Are you on Instagram? Are you on Facebook for the public? I have to look at for job reasons, so I don't like to do it for personal reasons. That's fine. Um, Okay. If you're if you're interested in finding Merlin, um, you can get her at merlinq.com. Also, you can find her in South Dakota. So Uh, that's it. Wamble it out. If you liked this podcast, subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google Play. For show notes and other fun things, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Or you can drop us an email at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can find us on Instagram at hurlyburlyshakes. Or at hurlyburlyshake on Twitter. The Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show was produced and edited by Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. Our fantastic theme music was composed by Jonathan Shue. You can learn more about him at jonathanshue.com or find his albums on iTunes. All opinions you heard on this podcast are our own and are not at all affiliated with our institutions of work and or study. I assume, I think I know what your favorite quote from this play is, but do you have a quote that you would like to say? What's that, butts? There we go. <laughs> Thank you. I just I just wanted it in a sound bite. <laughs> Wham it out. Wham it out. I put the pedal to the metal, there's dust in my eyes Burning up my rubber going 95 I don't get to where I'm going, I think I might die I'm going to Las Vegas to get me a wife I mean, not to like harp on it too much But they also show one in an episode of The Tudors Yeah, I know <laughs> They do, where I like know, Anne is all I sexy know. wearing a mask And yep. Henry's in it, and they're like, woo like I into know. each other yeah jim carrey also did a whole movie about them yes he did <laughs> <laughs> yep oh. <That's> <laughs> i love that movie